Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Heal Thyself in this special studio, my makeshift living room here. But uh, we do what we can to get this information out to you all. I know that uh, this has been helpful. So we will continue doing these shows until we're back in the studio like the old days, whatever those days were. So today's show is going to be a really good one. I know I say it all the time, and it's true. Um, we are going to do a really, really good knowledge bomb about the state of coronavirus and everything that's going on. You may have a lot of questions, and I want to uncover and reveal a lot of things for you. So you, as the uh, consumer of this information, will be able to be more empowered. Also, very special guest, the sleep doctor, world-renowned Dr. Michael Bruce, will teach us how to improve our sleep and all the details on, okay, well, should I be going to bed this time and this time versus this time? Or uh, should I be eating this late or not this late? So he answers all those questions. It's going to be a really, really amazing show. Um, so without further ado, of course, let's just get into the knowledge box. All right, everyone. I hope all is well in this time. Really, really important to say that because, um, like I said last week, we have this opportunity to find ourselves to be in a place where we can turn things off and really start digging into ourselves, who we are, learning about ourselves more, and not being in that daily grind that distracts us so much, right? And in this uh, whole experience, it really is unprecedented. And I'm sure that many years from now, we're going to be telling our kids and our grandkids all about this. And uh, the countries, every every country in the world is bound by this global experience, which is pretty amazing to know that, wow, it's just one thing, one problem right now in the forefront of everything that is binding us. Um, and just to, just to see that and think about that as a whole. So yeah, the world is on pause, but it truly does feel like it's also fast forwarding. Because for me, it feels like pre-quarantine was years ago. And you know, some of you may feel the same way. But I wanted to go into a few things about the state of the coronavirus up till now and everything we're seeing and learning and being told and important facts that we need to be knowing to empower ourselves. So as of yesterday, which was the 14th of April, uh, there are 587,173 cases of coronavirus with 23,644 deaths. Okay, and I'm going to say this clearly, and I'm going to say this confidently, is that I believe those numbers are not accurate, especially, especially the death toll, and I'm going to tell you why in a little bit. So back in March, the World Health Organization announced that coronavirus kills 3.4% of people that get it. And today, many believe that was a gross estimate, and it was predicted to be actually around 2%. The biggest problem is the uncertainty of mildly or asymptomatic folks who are never diagnosed, and the overestimation of coronavirus-related deaths, right? Countries with better testing of its citizens are reporting much lower numbers. Last month, even, we saw that South Korea, which has about 1,100 tests per million residents, reports about a 0.6 mortality rate. And as of last month, the U.S. had a robust seven tests per million residents and reported 5% or so at that point. Now we have more tests and I'll go into that later too. But the mess was happening from the beginning, especially in the testing. The World Health Organization warned countries in January about coronavirus, right? And they wanted to distribute a German-based test that was validated by them for the coronavirus. And the CDC was like, nah, we're going to develop our own. We don't want it 
right? So then early February, the CDC sent out a first batch of its kits to all 50 states, the ones that they developed, right, after they turned down the German-based test. And immediately, these labs began to see problems with the test yielding inconclusive results over and over and over. The tests were faulty. So then this caused a three-week delay at the worst time because now we have no data on the coronavirus in those three weeks, which are very, very sensitive and very important three weeks, especially in the early stages of an outbreak. Why? Because we need this information to gather a public health approach. And we didn't know unless we had the suspected cases confirmed early on, and we didn't because of those faulty tests. And for weeks, we had the spreading of the coronavirus going undetected. So then comes late February, and the FDA is like, look, the CDC ain't doing nothing. So it then started allowing academic labs to start testing, right? University labs. And this is a quote by Fyodor Yurnov, a scientific director of one of those labs. It's called the Innovative Genomics Institute at the University of California, Berkeley whose lab has been testing for a coronavirus since the end of March. And he has this epic quote, and it goes like this. I don't want to be disparaging, but the people who made the CDC kit simply failed at molecular biology. They have created a nightmare, right? So now we have these labs, university labs, that have retooled for coronavirus testing but are not operating at full capacity still. Why? It's due to regulatory, logistic, administrative obstacles and they're being stymied and fragmented by the U.S. healthcare system, which we now more than ever are seeing how broken it is, right? So we were caught flat-footed from the beginning with this coronavirus. Now, many states are backlogged with tests because of these strict administrative procedures in setting up with new labs in the hospital. So now we have the CDC and misleading guidelines in coding for coronavirus. And this is the big problem that I started talking about this week, right? So the CDC's death certificate manual tells physicians to focus on precision and specificity. But the coronavirus death certificate guidance runs completely counter to this axiom, right? So medical coding for coronavirus is a mess, period. As per the, the April 4th CDC memo to hospitals, you'll be surprised actually to know that the official CDC guidance for coding for coronavirus-related deaths reads as follows. Coronavirus should be reported on the death certificate for all descendants where the disease caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to death. Confirmatory lab tests verifying coronavirus are not required. That's on the website. That's on the website. So this is not what the death certificate manual reads, right? Remember I just said, they said focus on precision and specificity, but hold up, not for coronavirus. So you're telling me that if someone comes in with pneumonia caused by influenza, for example, right, and that's a common cause of pneumonia and dies, you're going to put the cause of death as coronavirus on the certificate because it's assumed. And then you're going to add it to the total number of deaths that are coming out to the public. Now, mind you, the flu and the coronavirus are very similar in symptomatology. Flu is more abrupt and coronavirus is more gradual and flu sometimes have shortness of breath and respiratory symptoms, but coronavirus has that more commonly. But still, it can be hard to tell for some folks, particularly because there's a range of symptom severity when it comes to coronavirus. So this season, the CDC estimates that 
as of mid-March, between 29,000 and 59,000 people have died already due to influenza during this flu season. So my question is, what percent of those people were listed as dying from coronavirus on their certificate of death, right? Because without the testing, we have no idea. But if they have similar symptoms that it could have been a flu and they die, we're going to put that because the CDC says if it's assumed as the cause of death, coronavirus. You see how these numbers are becoming inflated and skewed? This is a big problem that I have and many other physicians are having and seeing and speaking up about. So then the thing that I hear is also, how about all the people with coronavirus that never went to the hospital and never got tested and they died at home? Well, what about it, right? What about that? My answer is, how do you know that they had coronavirus if they were never tested? But we're still counting those suspected deaths as coronavirus deaths. And we are assuming that this was the cause of death. So 39.7 people per 100,000 people will die of lower respiratory disease per year. New York City has 8.4 million people. That's 3,334 people will die of lung disease in New York. So those people who die or who have died, we're going to call that coronavirus because it's assumed because coronavirus, quote unquote, attacks the lungs, right? It's actually an immune reaction that causes that. But, but we're going to call that a coronavirus death. How about heart disease? One person dies every 37 seconds of heart disease. So you're going to tell me if someone dies alone in their home of a heart attack and one of their loved ones or next of kins has said that they had a fever and a cough during flu season, may I remind you, we're still going to list that as coronavirus. Or even if they had coronavirus, positive test, but they died of a heart attack, was that death caused by coronavirus or was it caused by a lifetime of poor diet, lack of exercise, and a shitty lifestyle, right? So Dr. Deborah Burks, who is the response coordinator for the White House Coronavirus Task Force, just said, just said a few days ago, that they are classifying all deaths, all deaths of patients with coronavirus as COVID-19 deaths, regardless of the cause. This is exactly what I'm just saying. This is exactly what I'm saying. So we have Deborah Burks, who's right there front and center as a response of the coordinator for the White House on this task force, saying the same exact thing that I'm trying to tell you all, despite other nations doing the complete opposite. On top of that, there's this issue. I'm going to give you a quote. Right now, Medicare has determined that if you have COVID-19 admission to the hospital, they'll get paid $13,000. If that COVID-19 patient goes on a ventilator, which is a whole other convo, if that causes more damage than good, but if, they, if the patient goes on a ventilator, they get $39,000, three times as much. So nobody can tell me after 35 years in the world of medicine that sometimes those things have an impact on what we do. This is from Dr. Scott Jensen, who's vocal about the CDC's ridiculous guidelines, right? Another quote by him, some physicians really have bent towards public health and will put influenza or whatever because that's their preference on the death certificate, right? That's what he added. This is as per Dr. Jensen. I try to stay very specific and precise. If I know I've got pneumonia, that's what's going on the death certificate. I'm not going to add stuff just because it's convenient. We're living in a dangerous time. Why? People are on edge, right? You don't think so? Go to the supermarket, let out a sneeze and see what happens. How many people look at you like you're uh, a quarantined sick patient who needs to be in a bubble wrap, right? Qu 
quarantine, people are incessantly watching the news, always, right? And they're instilling fear, fear, and more fear, right? You read the numbers, you're in fear. You watch them go up the next day, you're in fear. And then Bill Gates and Fauci will tell you nothing will be the same until the vaccination comes, and then you're in more fear, right? The easiest way to influence people are to have them living in fear because they want an answer and they want a savior and they want it quick. That's the quickest and easiest way to influence people, right? I don't doubt that people are dying. That's true. And I don't doubt that doctors and nurses are stressed, especially in New York and they're spread thin. But, and they should be recognized and applauded, right? I, I say that from the beginning, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm making is that people are dying, but how many of coronavirus? Where are the people with heart disease, Alzheimer's, stroke, non-coronavirus caused pneumonia, influenza, pre-existing respiratory diseases, right? I'd be interested to see the 2020 numbers at the end of the year and see how many people have died of these causes or if they've gone down, right? But I do suspect a decrease or a skew in the numbers. The reporting is a shit show, period. We know that. There's doctors coming out and saying that. Right? There's actually doctors that are refusing to follow the CDC guidelines. It's not accurate, and the number of deaths are inflated, and that's skewing the mortality rate. And that's adding more fear into the collective, and then that's when I have a problem because I speak about fear. I speak what it does to our health. right? I speak about what it does to our immune system, and I speak about what it does to the collective consciousness, and it's a big issue. In the words of Dr. Shiva, MIT uh, scientist, we live in a world right now where it's very easy to use ignorance and fear. And using those two prongs, it's easy to impose policy on people, right? And we know that Dr. Fauci is the face of multiple entities, including Big Pharma. So let me tell you what is coming in the pipeline. Dr. Fa from Dr. Fauci and Gates, Bill Gates. Gates wants vaccination of the world. He spoke about this, right? A mandated vaccination for everyone, which is very, 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 very dangerous ground to walk on, right? Did you know? that we already tried a coronavirus vaccine for SARS in the early 2000s. In these animals, after vaccination, they were, after, after vaccination, they were exposed to the virus again and they suffered hyperimmune reactions like full body inflammation, lung infections, and death, right? And researchers warned that caution needs to be applied before using these vaccines. As per Dr. Peter Hotez, of Baylor University. He says that the coronavirus vaccines have a unique safety problems. Animals were not getting immune enhancement like you would hope for in a vaccine, but instead, instead they were developing immune pathology. Dr. Paul Offit of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we do not know how to make these vaccines for one, but also coronavirus vaccines make binding antibodies and they cause something called antibody-dependent enhancement. Basically, what that is, is that our antiviral proteins facilitate viral entry into the cells. In other words, literally, the vaccination is enhancing the infection. Big problem. They saw that with dengue fever. And they've seen that with coronavirus vaccines. So here's the most dangerous part. Dr. Fauci wants to skip animal vaccinations and fast-track that to human trials. And who's funding this vaccination, this public vaccination, this fast track? Bill Gates. So on February 4th, Dr. Fauci gave Gates the coronavirus vaccine liability immunity in America, right? You don't believe me, go to the Department of Health and Human Services. You will see that 
the coronavirus vaccine now has liability immunity in America. They cannot be sued if they kill you or they make you sick if you get a mandated vaccine. That's the huge issue because we are not all the same. You cannot just give the same vaccine to people. People have different biochemistry. They have different enzymes to break it down. They have different liver function. They have different chronic diseases. Regardless, states of health, regardless, when you give that vaccine, it will not react and work the same way to all individuals. That is dangerous ground because now with liability immunity, if your son has a specific sensitivity or cannot break down the adjuvants and vaccines and dies from that vaccine, you ain't going to sue anybody because there's liability immunity against the coronavirus vaccine, especially if it's mandated, meaning you have no other choice than to say, I can only let you give my son a vaccine. I can't say no. I can't say no. I can't say no because it's mandated. Without choice, we are now walking on dangerous ground. And this is a point I'm trying to make. So it's not a question about pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. This is a question of medical freedom, right? One size does not fit all, as I said. We are, and I said this before, biochemically individualistic. And authoritarian medicine is dangerous. Someone from the top down making medical decisions for us is a big problem, especially with me. The question is, are people making decisions over our body about what goes in and what goes out? And especially what is going into my body, right? And this is a very, very, very slippery slope for us, right? The answer is not in a vaccine, I'll tell you that much. It's certainly not for the healthy population, right? Because you learn and you, you do your research and you see that coronavirus is affecting the large majority is to those with comorbidities, right? Those who are not a healthy a population, right? So the coronavirus vaccine is not appropriate for a public health approach, especially when it's not safety tested and especially when it's tied to the aforementioned, aforementioned safety issues that I just spoke about. So ask yourself, who is a large majority of people who are getting sick with coronavirus and dying? And I mentioned those with comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementias, cancers, respiratory disease, things that we can help prevent or slow down with proper education. The world does not need another vaccine to get healthier. I promise you that. The answer is on a public health change and teaching people proper nutrition, proper lifestyle, right? Not having people whose vested interest is, is in keeping us sick with the food industry, with pharmaceuticals, medicines that suppress our health, that suppress symptoms, but do not get to the root cause, right? Loose, loose uh, legislation on environmental toxins and exposures. That's not getting us healthier. A vaccine is another way to put a Band-Aid on something that needs true, true transformation at the root cause. And this is the point I'm trying to make. We need better public health education on how to be healthier, right? So Bill Gates is not the savior, I promise you that. On the spectrum of savior to psychopath, he's right there with Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. So on the bright side, here's what I'm gonna say. Dr. Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General, he recently came out and said that the Gates predictive contagion model that they've been using is overblown has exaggerated the numbers, which I am saying the same exact thing, and that now they're using real data to track this, not models, and they're gonna stop causing unnecessary fear. Data will drive the reopening of different parts of the country. Faster than Bill Gates had said, we, we have six months to a year before anything is, is back to normal. No, Dr. Jerome Adams, our Surgeon General, is saying differently. So contrary to the fear-mongering media tour by Gates and Fauci, 
this is potentially the best news, right? Because he brought up the importance of understanding the consequences of folks who stay at home too. We're not talking about that or what it, what it does to the economy, but also to mental health and then folks who are victims of domestic abuse being at home with their abusers, right? There's, there's a whole other side that we are not balancing out. So it's very important to understand that the Surgeon General wants to abandon this uh, Bill Gates model of fear-mongering that is exaggerating the numbers, as I just said, and using real data to track this so we can get back to quote-unquote normal life. And this is what I love seeing, one of the most things. If you go to Bill Gates' Instagram, every single post, I'm talking about two weeks behind, is inundated with people who are commenting, exposing his real intentions, calling for his arrest against, for crimes against humanity, people standing up for their true freedoms. And that's our last freedom, right? Our body freedom. So more than anything, in this quarantine, I've observed a great awakening from people. And it's interesting. I don't think that that was planned, but when we turn off the everyday grind and we stop, we start thinking. And for those who, who have been awakened, for those who have opened their eyes, for those who are finally critically thinking and questioning the food industry, right, the pharmaceutical industry that keeps us sick, finally, who people who are questioning this, I thank you all. I thank you all for making these massive shifts because you've given yourself this opportunity during this quarantine to open your eyes. And I truly, truly think that we will never go back to pre-quarantine life because you cannot see, unsee things when you are awakened, right? When you return to life, I truly believe that people will be more empowered and ready to shift mountains. And that I'm very grateful for. So thank you all for keeping your eyes open, critically thinking, not taking mainstream media for what they tell you at face value and going, hold on, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Not listening to what someone like Bill Gates wants to do with mandating vaccines and going, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't matter. Didn't say it's, this is a pro-vax, anti-vax. It's for your true freedom, your body's freedom. All right, there you go. That's my knowledge bomb. I can't wait to talk to Dr. Michael Bruce. This guy is on fire when it comes to sleep. He is a leading sleep expert. You can find him on Oprah, Rachel Ray. You put on the TV and he's on there teaching everyone how to sleep. So without further ado, let's get to that special guest segment. Dr. Michael Bruce, I have you on the show and I'm so excited to talk because we have yet to do any sleep show. So ever. I'm the first. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, actually, when we met uh, recently, I was like, oh, my God, I need this guy on and we need to talk sleep head to toe inside out. And of course, you are the guy I've seen you all over media. I look on every time I go on your Instagram, I see you on a new show. So that's amazing. <laughs> Whether it be Oprah, Rachel Ray. Um, so you're very much so appreciated. I have so many questions for you. Sure. Let's start like this. Um, I know what's what's the most common question you get about sleep first and foremost. Honestly, uh, what mattress should I buy? Really, that's the number one question that I get asked. Really, where I go, what bed should I buy? Because you know it's it's confusing, right? Yeah. I mean, look. At the end of the day, I feel like sleep is a performance activity, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm a runner. Uh, we were just discussing this before we came on. And so if you're a runner, you can run a race in flip flops with torn shorts and a t-shirt with the boom box on your arm, but your time's not going to be too good. Right. You know, but if you've got your ASICs on and your dry fit wear and you've got good tunes, like you move the same holds true with sleep. If you've got the right equipment, 
right? You sleep better. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that everybody out there who's got a sleep problem needs a new mattress because that's simply not the case. But it's absolutely a contributing factor, especially if you're sleeping in something that's like, you know, looks like a taco, right? I mean, like at the end of the day, you know, some of these people keep beds. It's funny. I was talking to my mom before we came on. We were talking about her air conditioner and I, she lives in Florida. And I said, mom, you, you, maybe you should consider getting a new air conditioner. And she said, well, the warranty hasn't run out yet. Mm, yeah. And I was like, how long have you had that thing? And she's <laughs> like, 10 years. I'm like, think of all the technological advances that have been made in 10 years in air conditioning technology. You live in Florida, for God's sakes, get a new AC. Exactly. Right? And, and I think people have that same mentality when it comes to mattresses. Right? Yeah, until it breaks down. And I think I did sleep on a taco in college, so no wonder well, I didn't get. You probably did. <laughs> no you wonder I didn't get did. any sleep. All right, all right. Well, that that that's great to know. Um, so it's really quality. Um, I know you had mentioned like the how we're sleeping, and not not only that, the temperature, right? Because I think people yeah. overlook this. This is a big part and a big contributing factor to good sleep, right? Yeah. Well, so if you were to, if you wanted to have an effect on your sleep there's really three things that you need to be very aware of. So if you take anything from this podcast, there's three things that people wanna do in order to improve the quality of their sleep. Number one, wake up at the same time every single day, okay? Now, why would you do that? When you wake up at the same time, your circadian rhythm or that internal biological clock knows what to do. It knows when to go to sleep and it knows when to wake up. Everything else follows suit after that. The big thing that most people don't know is in order to fall asleep quickly and effectively, you need a cool room. So that's where we get into this whole idea of temperature. Most people haven't figured this out yet, and to be fair, they probably wouldn't, is sleep follows a core, the core body temperature rhythm. So your core body temperature rises, rises, rises at about 10.30 in the evening, it hits a peak. When it crests that peak and starts to go down, that's a signal to the brain to release melatonin, and that's when we fall asleep, generally speaking. So keeping a cool room, believe it or not, close to like 65 degrees is really, as you really want it to be cool. Now, to be fair, I lived in Arizona for 10 years. If I could cool my house to 65 degrees, I'd have no money left in my bank account. <laughs> so I would say you want to be about 20, 25 degrees off the daily high, mm -hmm. um, especially during the summertime. Um, but you know, in Arizona, if it's 120 degrees, you can't have your house cooled down to 100. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. It needs to be cool in order for our, our bodies to be able to handle it. Um, and the third one is light. Um, really understanding how light affects sleep and the melatonin production process, right? And so here's the thing that to remember is light, particularly in the blue spectrum, but across most spectrums, when it hits the eyeball, it turns off the melatonin faucet in your brain, mm. right? And so I keep talking about melatonin. Everybody needs to remember, melatonin is kind of like that key that starts the engine for sleep. It's not the only thing that we need, but you damn well better have enough of it on board at the right time in order for your body to know and understand that it needs to fall asleep. So wake up at the same time every single day, following your core body temperature rhythm, keep your bedroom cool, and if you can, avoid bright light in the evenings. And that, if, if, if you could only do those three things, and we're gonna talk about a lot of other stuff, yeah. if you could only do those three things, those would be probably the key principles for sure. Now, okay, all right, I have, so I wanna just build on those. Going to sleep every or waking up the same time every day, is that the same across the board for folks? Does everyone no. have to wake up at 5.30 in the morning? No. 
So there's these things called chronotypes. Now, I know that you know what a chronotype is, but a lot of our listeners may not know uh, and viewers might not know. So you've probably heard the term before, but you may not have uh, uh, know what it is, right? And so if you've ever heard of somebody being called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. So as an example, I'm more of a night owl, but I've got patients who are more of an early bird. So they may wake up earlier than me. But if I wake up at the same time for my chronotype, my body is now in sync with my circadian rhythm and everything works better. Now, the next question you're going to say is, well, Michael, how does somebody know what their chronotype is? You go to chronoquiz.com. I've created a quiz, an online quiz. You can take it and you can figure it out. I right? took it. Um, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Now, what's interesting about chronotypes, however, is I added one. So we used to think there was early bird, night owl, and then one in between that we called the hummingbird, okay? Not particularly original in terms of our vernacular, to be fair. So I decided to change the, the names of each one of these. Oh, and by the way, these are genetic. So if you, have, if you go to 23andMe or Ancestry.com or one of those, um, you can figure out exactly where the polymorphism is on the on the PER3 gene, and, and it's it's literally right there. So people always ask, you know, can I change my chronotype? I want to wake up at 5:30 in the morning. Don't do that. Mm. Do not do that. That is just stupid. Okay. Only about 20 to 25 percent of people can get up at between 4:30 and 5 o'clock in the morning on a regular basis and do well with that right? Because those are the early bird chronotypes and maybe a little bit of the hummingbird that are kind of more on the early side. But other than that, they really don't do that. Um, so anyway, I created these new categories. So early bird becomes a lion, right? Number one, who doesn't want to be a lion, right? I mean, that's kind of a cool thing to be, yeah. but it turns out that lions actually wake up uh, before dawn. Their first kill is before dawn. So they actually really are early morning creatures. In the middle, what we used to call as a hummingbird, I call them bears. Uh, so they wake up when the sun comes up. They kind of go to sleep when the sun goes down. Bears make up 50% of the population. To be fair, it's the best to be a bear because so much of society works on a bear schedule. The whole idea of nine to five is really built for bears. Night owls become wolves. I'm a wolf. Um, and um, I never go to bed before midnight, ever. Like, I just don't do it. I can't fall asleep. And if I do fall asleep before midnight, I'm up super early because I only really require about six and a half hours of sleep. Now, we're going to talk about that in a yeah. minute, too, because different chronotypes require different amounts of sleep. And everybody out there probably wants to figure out not just their chronotype, but how much sleep do they really need? Now, that conversation is also interesting because we, we need to stop thinking about sleep in a quantity way and start thinking about sleep in a quality way. Mm -hmm. By sleeping at your chronotype and waking up consistently, you actually improve your sleep quality and reduce your sleep quantity. Wow. So what happens is once you figure out your chronotype and you go to bed and you wake up at the same time every single day, more wake up than go to bed, your entire sleep um, cycle begins to shrink believe it or not. So that's why I only sleep six hours and 15 minutes and I'm the freaking sleep doctor, uh, right? Yeah. Because I go to bed at midnight, I wake up at 6.13 every single day, whether I like it or not, Saturdays or Sundays, it doesn't matter. Um, so I go take the dogs for a walk before everybody wakes up or I go to a spin class or something like that um, and kind of figure that out. But that's a great thing, way for people to do that. So I'm a wolf. Um, we make up about 15% of the population. And then the fourth category is somebody called a dolphin. So those are my insomniacs. Those are my kind of my problem children. They make up about 10% of the population. And we have some very specific guidelines and recommendations for them. 
Wow. Yeah, I, did, I too am a wolf. No wonder because there you go. I I, I've, I've always wanted Well, that would make to... sense because when I was at uh, that party with you, we were out pretty late <laughs> and you were doing just fine. I was doing fine. I was alive yeah. and chit-chatting. And I never understood why I couldn't go to sleep at nine o'clock at night, at 10 at night. Because genetically, you are not supposed to. <laughs> wow. That's why. That's pretty, but it's pretty incredible because then you, I look at my family and I was like, we all have that commonality, actually. It's genetic. It really is. Like my dad has been a night owl as long as I can remember. When I was in college, if I got home at two o'clock in the morning, it was nothing for me to call my dad. I, he'd pick up on the first ring. He'd be like, hey, what's up? Really? You know, how was your night? Really? You know, like just runs in families. So, all right. So w with that said, then I know we, we, you talk about sleep cycles and quality. Um, mm -hmm. Don't we need a certain amount of sleep cycles and doesn't that equal a like seven, seven and a half hours then? So it's interesting. So the average sleep cycle is 90 minutes long and the average individual has five of those. So five times 90 is 450 minutes, which is seven and a half hours, right? So let's be clear, eight hours is a myth, mm. all right? Don't go by the, the, the math doesn't even work right. right on eight hours, but people have various lengths of their sleep cycles. My sleep cycle turns out to be 81 minutes long. I know that because I work in a sleep lab. I can use a tracker, whatever you want to do to discover the length of your sleep cycle. And so that's the experiment that I teach people. So most people have what we call a socially determined wake up time. Right. So in our house, I got to get up at 630 because the dogs start getting up and the kids start getting up and things like that. So then I would count backwards from 6.30, seven and a half hours, okay? So that put me at 11 o'clock and that became my bedtime. Here was the problem. I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at 5.30. Mm. The only thing I hate more than mornings are morning people, right? <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. Right? And so <laughs> I didn't want to be up at 5.30 in the damn morning. So I went to bed at 11, woke up at 5.30, said, ah, I'm going to go to bed at 12, see what happens. Went to bed at 12, woke up at 6.30. So what we discovered was, is my sleep cycle was significantly shorter than what I had expected, but it had shrunk due to the consistency of my sleep schedule. So by waking up every morning at 6.30, Saturday and Sunday, my body becomes more efficient at the process of sleep. Then by going to bed at the right time for my chronotype, my body falls asleep quickly. I get into very deep sleep. I get into my REM sleep. I really don't have a lot of light sleep any longer uh, when we look at it on the tracker because quite frankly it's been so consolidated so you're so you basically aligned your sleep biologically you've optimized your biological that's correct and and that's basically what we should be doing such that we find the best quality of sleep based on where we fall genetically yeah absolutely so what i so and that's what i do for people so it's kind of funny because i went from being a sleep doctor where i was treating apnea and narcolepsy and insomnia now i'm a high performance sleep coach mm. so like i work with people who want to optimize their lives and they say michael i have a certain amount of time for sleep and i want to get the best sleep that i possibly can what do we do and we just get together and figure it out. Because so many of us want to wake up at five thirty in the morning, six in the morning, six thirty in the morning, tackle the day, right? Um, but that's but remember, it might not be the best idea for everybody, right? And that's right. the thing. Like you, you're a wolf. I'm a wolf. The worst thing we can try to do is get up at five a.m. Wow, which makes it so just much sucks. sense. Yeah, yeah. I, when you first said that, it I, I literally looked back on all my life and it explained everything. I was like, no wonder <laughs> I I hated those peppy morning people who are flipping pancakes Ugh, and got the terrible. music on. It's too much for I me. Can't stand them. Exactly. So um, what? So then when we talk about how about folks who are just 
waking up for everything. Is that, is that multi-layered? Because I know a lot of people come to me, they say, Dr. G, I can get to bed so fast, I wake up over everything. So I actually wrote a blog on the three top reasons why people wake up in the middle of the night and what to do about it. And there's a few of them to be fair. So let's let's run through a couple of them. So for the guys, the first thing I want to understand is, are you getting up to go to the bathroom? If you are getting up to go to the bathroom, how much is coming out? Because this could be an enlarged prostate issue, right? So number one, first thing when a guy comes up to me and says, hey, I'm waking up, talk with your doctor, get a prostate exam. Let's make sure everything there mm. is good. If that is not the issue, then there are other things that we can take a look at. The biggest one, believe it or not, blood sugar. Um, I can't, it shocked me, um, but the truth of the matter is, is in about a third of my patients, what's happening is they're going to bed um, and they haven't eaten since like six o'clock, right? So what ends up happening is they're waking up always at the same time, which is like three o'clock in the morning. And so when you look at the last time that they ate versus when they're waking up, they're out of fuel more than likely. So sometimes I use um, what's called guava leaf tea, not guava fruit and not guava juice, but guava leaf tea actually helps keep your blood sugar stable um, without having to add any sugar on board. For some people um, who have a little bit of a sweet tooth, I sometimes will use a teaspoon of raw honey for people, um, either with the guava leaf tea or just, in, just by itself. Um, and because of the because it's raw, it seems to take a little bit longer for people to digest it, um, and it seems to keep them stable longer. Um, the third thing that I look at is, um, do they really have to go to the bathroom or not, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night, and the first thing they do is they look at the clock. Then they instantly do the mental math, right? And then they're pissed, right? Because who wants to be up at three thirty in the morning, you know, every single morning, right? Yeah. And so what they in, so what they end up doing is they increase all this autonomic arousal, right? Because they've looked at the clock, they're pissed off, and then they're like, sleep, sleep, sleep. You know, they try really hard, yeah. and that's not because all this autonomic arousal. Remember, you have to have a heart rate of uh, 60 or below in order to fall asleep, mm -hmm. right? And so by creating all this autonomic arousal and getting so upset looking at the clock, there's no way you're going to sleep. Not only that, then when you go from a lying position to a seated position to a standing position, guess what? Your heart rate is up now. So if you don't actually have to pee, don't. To be clear, I'm not saying don't go to the bathroom if you gotta go to the bathroom, but a lot of people wake up, they don't really have to go, and they're like, well, I'm up, I might as well. Bad idea. Lie there, keep your eyes closed, don't look at the clock, and change your breathing patterns, right? And so breathing turns out to be a very easy way to lower our heart rate. I personally use a four, seven, eight breathing technique, so you breathe in for a count of four, you hold it for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of eight. The Navy SEALs have used this technique for a very long period of time to really drop heart rate uh, quite quickly. And that can be super duper helpful um, in the middle of the night to kind of lower that heart rate and kind of get you back to where you need to go. The other big thing that I tell people who wake up in the middle of the night is intent. So this is gonna seem strange, but most people, when they look at that clock, they just get pissed off, right? They're like, God, I can't believe it. I've only got three hours left to sleep. I got to really try to sleep. I'm exhausted. All of that negativity, and I'm not, I, I'm a science guy to be clear, okay? Yeah. But I'm telling you something, there's data to show that when you are in a negative mood, your cortisol levels stay raised, okay? Cortisol levels being raised does not go well with sleep. Let's just be very clear. Cortisol is the fight or flight hormone. It's the energy, adrenaline kind of thing.
You don't want that there. So when you look at the clock in the middle of the night, here's what I want people to say. This is awesome. I've got three more hours to get some great quality sleep. I'm gonna lie here and relax. Dr. Bruce let me know that even just lying here is rejuvenative to some extent. So I'm gonna stay here, I don't have to pee. I'm gonna do my breathing, chill out and see what happens. If you don't fall asleep, believe it or not, about an hour's worth of rest is worth about 15 minutes of sleep from kind of a rejuvenation standpoint, just wow. being recumbent and keeping your heart rate down and that kind of thing. So you're not doing something bad for yourself at all. And who knows, you might fall asleep. Right? Mm, wow, so that that explains a lot, even from my side, because I am one to wake <laughs> up. I'm always like, up, oh, but I'm like, okay, ready to go for the day. Oh, wow, it's three in the morning. Um, right. But for me, and since we last had that conversation I, and I heard you talk, I have been doing guava leaf tea. And it's been oh, okay. very helpful. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been, I, I'm pretty sure it was a blood sugar thing because I stopped eating at seven and I would go to sleep like at 12, you know, and I, I just, I, I sort of had an idea, but you confirmed yeah. that. Well, and, and it's amazing because the guava leaf tea, it, it's not a sweet taste. It's a, no. it's a slightly medicinal taste, but you get used to it. And if you throw a little cinnamon or a little honey in for taste, it's actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then, so then how about the folks who are not able to fall asleep, maybe like those dolphins. I know that might be multi-layered with insomnia and everything, but just fo folks so, who just can't sleep. Yes, well, so when you look at, when you look at insomnia as a, as a formal diagnosis, here's mm -hmm. what I can tell you is it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of different reasons why people don't fall asleep. And to be fair, I would argue that there are different flavors of insomnia, okay? So as an example, um, there's ins I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. I wake up too early. There's insomnia associated with depression, with anxiety, with pain. I mean, dude, the list goes on and on and on. So, so the first thing you have to understand is, is the insomnia secondary to another comorbid cause like depression, anxiety, something like that? Or is it primary? Is it not being caused by one of these other things, but maybe there's something else that's going on? So the first thing to do is figure out, okay, is something fueling this or not? In either case, to be fair, the best pharmaceutical out there is probably not going to be what you want. So when you start to look at pharmaceuticals for sleep, the best scenario is when we use one to break the cycle of the insomnia where somebody's on a sleeping pill, let's say for 30, 60, maybe 90 days to rejigger their cycle, get them back, teach them what to do and then slowly taper them off the medication and then they should be sleeping well again. Here's the problem, almost nobody does that process. Mm -hmm. So when people go to an MD these days, what ends up happening is as the MD is walking out the door, we call this the door handle diagnosis, right? Is as they've got their hand on the door, the patient says, oh, by the way, doc, I don't sleep so well. Yeah. And he grabs his prescription pad and he writes out a script or she writes out a script for Ambien or Lunesta or Sonata and says, take these and let's talk again when I see you next time in three months. And lo and behold, this person takes the pills for three months. They show up and the doctor says, okay, are you done? Mm. No counseling, no, no taper schedule, nothing. And so this is a big, this is a big issue for a lot of people, right? And so, and, and to be fair, pharmaceutically induced sleep is different than natural sleep. I'm a big proponent of more natural related sleep um, and on a couple of different levels. So the first thing I talk to people about if they are having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep um, is let's look at your vitamin D uh, and let's look at your magnesium. 
Uh, these are two things that people are continuously deficient in that both have significant effects on our sleep. Magnesium is important for like over 300 different things in the body. And, and we have to eat our magnesium. Most people don't know our body doesn't manufacture it. You could eat a bushel of fucking kale and still not get enough magnesium, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you got to sometimes supplement with it. And vitamin D3 is something that I supplement every day personally as well. I take 5,000 international units every morning and about 250 milligrams of uh, magnesium with my B12. And that's kind of hits me for my morning. I do athletic greens to kind of get all my greens in and then I'm an intermittent faster. So, and I fast based on my chronotype. Mm. So I don't actually even start eating until four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm a wolf. Ah, which makes sense. I should probably wait. I should probably wait a little longer too. Ah, exactly. Didn't even think about the fasting schedule on that. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, you had mentioned, um, banana, bananas, uh, boiled bananas. So bananas are loaded with magnesium. And I tell people all the time, I created this recipe called banana tea. It's not really tea, just to be fair. So you go out and you get an organic banana and you wash it off. You cut off the tip and the stem. Turns out that the peel has got three times the amount of magnesium as the fruit itself. So if, when you cut off the tip and the stem, cut it in half, but leave the fruit in it and the peel on it. And then take the two halves and put it into about three cups of water and boil it till it turns brown and then drink the water. Mm. It's super banana flavored. It's loaded with magnesium. You can give it to kids. You can give it to seniors. It won't interact with any other medication that you might be taking. Um, and it works really well for getting you that magnesium. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, that I've been meaning to try for sure because I'm over here just taking a handful of magnesium capsules when I could just drink some water. Well, what's nice about it is also the um, the phytosteroids that are come from the banana anyway help you digest and absorb. So it, it actually works out really well to get it from, from a natural source. Um, for people to be careful with don't drink too much of the banana tea because it could uh cause diarrhea mm -hmm. um however if you deal with constipation this is something that's great for constipation awesome awesome so something we, a few things you spoke about when we spoke about coffee you spoke about adenosine and yes. the importance of adenosine for those who don't have any idea what adenosine is how does that play sure. a role in sleep so what happens is when a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end. One of those things is adenosine. Adenosine kind of works its way through the system and goes to a very specific receptor site in the brain. As the adenosine accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. So as the volume of that material increases in your head, that's what happens. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine, they're off by one molecule. So here's what's interesting. So I have a hack that I teach people that I'm happy to teach you and your audience called what I call the Napa latte, okay? okay? So here's what you do is if you're tired, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and you're dragging it, go get a cup of drip black coffee, throw in three ice cubes merely to cool it down. Slug it back as quickly as you can, then close your eyes immediately and take a 25 minute nap. What happens is during the 25 minute nap, your brain burns through the adenosine. The caffeine is literally waiting in the wings right there. It jumps in, you're good for four hours guaranteed. Wow. This is the hack of all hacks. How to use adenosine and caffeine in your favor by doing this Napa latte where you nap first um, and then uh, let the caffeine kick in. It's actually quite powerful. So only 20 minute nap. 20, 25 minute max. Okay, 20, 20. And that's including laying there or because some folks yeah. take five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes yeah. and even nap. You really don't need that much sleep, believe it or not. 
Oh, okay. Well, and, and then boom, you're good. Rest of the afternoon. You, I try it, dude. It's crazy. Okay. So then, um, so then when, when you come, when it comes to coffee, is there a best time to drink it in the morning or there is. So what I tell people all the time is, um, so for people out there, there are many people out there who think caffeinated liquid is the first thing that needs to cross my lips in the morning. Yeah. Okay. I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. What needs to enter your lips. The first thing in the morning is water. Okay, so people don't understand, but sleep in and of itself is a dehydrative event. You lose almost a full liter of water just from the humidity in your breath and breathing out all night long. So the first thing you should do, because your body's already dehydrated, is drink maybe 16 to 20 ounces of water just to rehydrate the system. Uh, the second thing you should do is get sunlight because that helps remove that melatonin and kind of clear that brain fog. Believe it or not, if you wait just 90 minutes after you open your eyes to then take on the caffeine, here's what happens. In order to get the brain out of a state of unconsciousness, we need two hormones. And we've spoken about one of them. One of them is cortisol. The other is adrenaline. Both of them rise to wake you up. But when they're already risen because they've woken you up and you add caffeine on top of them, it's honestly like adding weak tea to cocaine, mm. okay? It does no good whatsoever. And most people out there who drink coffee as their very first drink of the day, if I had to guess, they probably don't just have one cup. They probably have two or three cups because again, they've already got this adrenaline and cortisolized brain. They don't need any more stimulation. But if they wait just 90 minutes, that will come down. They add the caffeine and it will actually lift the cortisol back up and you get more bang for your buck. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I remember you here talking about that hack and me, I don't drink coffee, but then I started telling everyone who drinks right. coffee, quit, quit waking up and running to, you know, uh, yeah. wait 90 minutes and then drink your coffee. And it is a barn burner. Like all of a sudden burner. you're like, whoosh, I'm up. So I, so, so when it comes, and I was thinking about this, when it comes to the temperature of the room, there's some folks who shower, take, take a hot shower, hot bath right before bed. Is that essentially right. raising up their body temperature? Yeah, so for some people with insomnia, one of the things that we do is we get them to take a very, very hot bath because it raises that core body temperature artificially. And then when they get out, there's such a rapid um, uh. decrease in core body temperature, it fools the brain to release melatonin again. Mm. So that's a, that's a little trick that some people play on themselves. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends upon if you work out a lot, it depends upon how often your core body temperature raises, but it's not a bad thing to try. And working out in itself should be a few hours before we fall asleep for. I tell people you wanna, you wanna have about three or four hours to have stopped your workout before bed. Cause again, this core body temperature needs to be able to come back down to normal. Well, and then talking about uh, temperature, one thing I remember you said is putting the feet outside of the bed and why that yes. cools us down. So this is a common question that I get all the time um, because people are like, Dr. Bruce, I'm roasting and then I stick my feet out from under the covers and all of a sudden I magically feel better. What's going on? So we don't have hair on the bottoms of our feet. And so we have a different kind of skin there and we actually dissipate heat much more quickly that way. Um, and so I've saved more marriages as a sleep doctor than I think I ever would have as a marital therapist. Um, because what a lot of times I do is I have the women put socks on and the men don't, and the men keep their feet out from under the covers. It's very interesting. We have more men who like to be cool and women who seem to like to be warm generally speaking, but I've seen it in, in both directions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. And, uh, and that makes complete sense. Actually, after I, I heard your talk, I changed my I like this wool comforter and I went to like a much lighter one. Yeah. Um, 
I found that I was hot every single night, like way yeah. too hot that I should I should be. So I really started thinking about the core temperature, like as you were, as you were talking about, because mm -hmm. it's essential. It was one of the things you were saying, the top things. Yeah, and even you know, and and temperature can play a role in wakefulness as well. Um, in the mornings, like when I shower, the last minute of my shower, I start to make it colder and colder and colder until I really like it's hard to stand yeah. to like bring myself into that presence and kind of get that Wim Hof kind of thing yeah. going there. Um, but some people do that in the evenings. Um, but to be be clear, you want to be careful. You wouldn't want to do something like that right before bed because it's very alerting. So you'd want to do a cold plunge or something like that, you know, probably four or five hours before. But bed. yeah, but never, never like Wim Hofing before bed. No, I do have some patients who uh, have to work out at night. Yeah. And so what they will do is they'll take a, a slightly warm shower and then they'll move it into a cooler shower for a couple of minutes. Not like ice cold, mm -hmm. like like what we do with Wim, but more on the cooler side, just to, again, get that process of, you know, getting that heat out of the system. Cool. Um, so so we went over a lot, actually. That was that was pretty yeah. dense. I feel like we did your talk in like as much as we can here. What what things what things are we missing here? What things do we really need to are we missing to address? What's important for you? Well, so there's a couple of things that I think people are always curious about. So one, figure out what your chronotype is. If you can, go to chronoquiz.com. Um, you'll get a lot out of it. It's very interesting. It's a lot of fun. Um, if you have an interest, my book is called The Power of When. Um, you can go to The Power of When quiz. It's the same quiz as Chrono Quiz. Um, or uh, check out just thepowerofwhen.com to learn more about that. Um, we didn't mention that I do have my own line of supplements mm -hmm. um, specifically designed for people for middle of the night difficulty sleeping. Um, so it doesn't have melatonin in it. It has something called a magnolia bark, which helps reduce anxiety. So that's kind of interesting. But the biggest question that you didn't ask that seems to be on lots of people's minds these days is cannabis. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's like, you know, what's the story with cannabis? I mean, we're here in uh, Southern California where it's recreationally legal. And, and to be fair, I think it's recreationally legal in like 15 states yeah, now. Or yeah. It's like boosting that. up. Yeah. Right. So, so Michael, what do we do? How do we use this stuff? Do we use this stuff? What's going on there? So first of all, people should know I've written extensively about this at my blog. So if you go to the sleepdoctor.com and we can put it in the show notes, mm -hmm. um, click on the blog, type in the word cannabis, you'll learn more about it than you'd ever wanted to know. But for sleep in particular, the constituent that you want to be uh, aware of is CBN, not CBD. Okay, so people have been hearing about CBD everywhere. To be clear, you'd have to have almost 200 milligrams ingested of CBD to have any real sleep-related effect. 200 milligrams is like a bottle, okay, uh, yeah. of most of the stuff that you see out yeah. there. So please don't, buyer beware, don't be fooled, right? Now that level, now 100 milligrams of CBD might reduce your pain, mm -hmm. um, and that might be something that is affecting your sleep, so I'm not saying that that's completely ineffective, but if you're just taking it for sleep, understand the dosage requirements. And I've written all of this out on my blog so people can figure that part out. Um, the other thing that you wanna think about are these things called terpenes. So terpenes are what gives the marijuana its aroma, but it turns out that terpenes are in any flower, any plant that has an aroma. And when that aroma hits the limbic system, it can actually cause significant effects. And so some terpenes will make you feel energized and some terpenes will make you feel sleepy. And so when you are using cannabis, there are things to look for, like the different blends or uh, breeds, if you will. One is called an indiga, the other is called a sativa. 
Sativa has a tendency to be more energy promotion. Indiga has a tendency to be more relaxation promotion. So you want to stay more on the indiga side of things. You want to stay more on the CBN side of things. And then from a terpene perspective, you want to look up the terpenes and see if they're sleep-inducing terpenes like limoline and uh, lavender and things of that nature. Awesome. Awesome. That, that's, that's new info that, that I'm hearing too myself and people do for ask sure. about that. Um, one of the last things I want to ask is about melatonin. You don't like melatonin for folks taking it supplementally, right? Well, so here's the thing is melatonin is a sleep regulator, not a sleep initiator. So melatonin tells your brain it's time for bed. It doesn't make you feel sleepy. I don't mind melatonin when it's used appropriately, like for jet lag or for people who are trying to go to sleep at a particular time. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, most people have got enough melatonin in their brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people are misusing it and not using the right dosage. So it turns up the right dose is somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. Most of it's sold in three, five, and 10 milligram dosages. So people are way overdosing on it. Also, if you take it in a pill format, it's got to go in your throat, into your belly, get digested, and then come back up. That's a 90-minute process at best. So you don't take it like you would take a sleeping pill, right? Because sleeping pills are absorbed much more quickly into the system. Um, and those can be effective in 20, 30, 40 minutes. This takes 90 minutes. So you take your melatonin an hour and a half before you would actually want to close your eyes. So people misuse it by taking the wrong dose and not taking it at the right time. Well, that was very chock full of information. I mean, we went over everything pretty much. I mean, um, and thanks for talking about the CBD because that's that's something that I actually was wondering about too. And we got to talk. Yeah, about. It, it's very confusing in the marketplace now. And there's just so many products that come out and they all say, oh, we're sleep friendly. Yes, blah, blah, yes. Blah. I've seen I've seen some CBD like targeted for sleep. And I'm like, really? I was like, OK, interesting. But um, yeah. we, we got it ironed out here. Um, all right. So what, what are your plans? Are you I know you travel a lot or wh how, how can we find you? All I the information. do travel a lot. So on um, March 15th, I will be speaking for Tony Robbins at Unleash the Power in San Jose. Oh, yeah. Um, so 13,000 people in the audience should be quite a fun time if people are around and want to check out Tony. He's got some great stuff to share. Um, and um, I'm, I do a lot of national TV. And next week is National Sleep Awareness Week. So you never know where I might be for that one. Yeah, and, and then we can we can actually follow you and find you on your Instagram, which is a great Instagram, one. Instagram, which is thesleepdoctor.com. Facebook is thesleepdoctor. Twitter is thesleepdoctor. So I, and I, I have different content on all of the different platforms. Instagram seems to be the one that's got some of the most fun stuff. So if people yeah. are out there checking it out, you know, feel free to uh, shoot me a comment or uh, like it if you'd like. And then we can read your blogs. We can take that chrono quiz, which I took myself and I found out I had other people take it. So thank you for your work, man. It's, it's, it's hard to find really true science-based and the way you deliver, it's just really nice. Thanks. I appreciate it, G. All right, man. Thank you.